So hello and welcome uh, to episode 7 in Philosophical Tools for Spiritual Life for Arate House. Has been a long time between drinks. And for those of you who remember that last drink, it was entering the terrain of metaphysics and asking the central question, what is the nature of reality? And I answered that by saying, well, to answer that question, we really must begin by examining causation, that is cause and effect. And I made the claim that if you understand cause and effect, you really have the access point for any area of reality that you look into, and therefore, potentially, good knowledge in any particular discipline, from medicine to economics to cosmology and all the rest. Now, today what I want to do is situate this reality of causation much more in the context of our own unfolding lives, to get you might say, a bit more existential, a bit more pragmatic, and speak from the vantage point of our ordinary human experience. So whilst we're remaining pretty much in this sphere of metaphysics, this sphere of answering the question, what is the nature of reality, we will be doubling around related philosophical domains of phenomenology and maybe philosophy of mind. Because as I was stressing quite a lot last episode, Finding or knowing reality can only occur through our modes of interpretation and experience. So these necessarily become part of the picture. Today, what I'm going to do is make a very strong claim about the relationship between causation, cause and effect, and our own ordinary lives. And the claim is really this, that success or failure, happiness or depression, Confidence or fear, enlightenment or ignorance, a good life or a shit life, virtue or vice. All of these, absolutely 100%, depend on thoroughly mastering causation in the context of our everyday experience. So it doesn't really matter if you're a gardener or a historian or a grandmother or an entrepreneur, or a Christian, or an atheist, or an athlete. Whatever you do, however you live, whatever kind of existence you're going for, my claim is that mastering causation is the only way to accomplish your life. So if someone put a gun to my head and said, look, you and your philosopher mates speak a lot of words, you sound so sophisticated, but, you know, really, what's the most important thing I really need to know? I would answer, without a moment's hesitation, this very proposition, that mastering causation is the only, the only way to accomplish your life. Whatever your ambitions may be, from the lofty and noble to the mundane and worldly. So, that's really the proposition that I'm going to be defending. And, of course, I'm not saying you have to agree with it you might find good reasons to be critical. Um, and in a way, what I'm trying to do is set you up for a movement into the more ethical, or you could even say spiritual part of the series, which will come after this episode. And, you know, just to put um, all the cards on the table here, there are very good arguments which are sceptical of cause and effect, given by some of the great philosophers in, in the canon, probably the most... Um, the most notable one is the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume. 
Um, so there's good reasons to kind of rub against this, uh, this contention. But, you know, it's pretty clear where I stand on the question. And also, uh, you know, to put everything on the table here, it's also clear that really most philosophers are not sceptical about cause and effect. Okay, so I want to begin defending this proposition by conceding that almost all of us already kind of get this to some degree. We already live in accordance with this. We all kind of get causation. We know it's there. And we act in accord with it. Or at least we try to kind of most of the time. So, as I said last episode, that's why we get up and go to work to make money and pay bills. And maybe drink some wine on Friday night, but not on Monday morning. We all kind of look after our bodies, at least to some degree. We all try and obey laws, at least to some degree. And we obey social norms and cultural conventions. Most of us try in some way or another to improve our lot, at least to some degree. Maybe it's making a bit more money or trying to parent with a bit more diligence and care or learning new ideas, whatever it is. We do this in lieu of and in relationship to cause and effect. So we all kind of get that it's there. And that's, I think, why this is a really interesting place to begin, because there's nothing particularly foreign or alien about the notion that causation is really at the root of reality and that all of us kind of operate and function in lieu of that root. Well, I say all. I probably should say most, because some people do not obey causation at all. And these are the people that end up in an asylum or possibly in jail or possibly dead very early in their lives. But most of us do. And so we avoid those sorts of outcomes. Nonetheless, there's usually a very, very vast gap between kind of obeying causation to the extent that you refrain from touching a hot stove or maybe telling your loved one that they've definitely put on some weight because you understand that the consequences may be very severe of doing those things. That's on one hand. On the other hand, of mastering causation. To the extent that you live completely and utterly tuned into the causal malady of reality, which I claim is reality as it is. A symphony, you might say, of causes and effects in mutual dependence. So I'm kind of arguing that there's a gap. Very big gap. Very significant and profound gap. And in fact, a lot of philosophers talk about a kind of gap between appearance and reality. How reality looks to us and how reality actually is. So let's return for a moment to that rock that I talked about last episode, that hard grey thing that you see or step on or possibly both. The point here would be that when you see the rock or feel the hardness on your foot, you probably don't perceive it as something in a flow of infinitely, infinitely regressing causation. You just see it as a rock, which is a hard, shiny, grey, independent, discrete thing or object, very much in the imminence of your perception. And you just take it quite unreflexively to be that thing. And I think this goes for anything else that you might perceive, be it Donald Trump on television or a blue Honda Civic in the street or an autumn tree shedding its red leaves. When we look at these things, 
We really do see these things as if they are discrete objects. And we also conceptualize them in that way too, kind of automatically. So we have these processes of interpretation which involve uh, sensory impressions and perception and cognition, which all work to produce a kind of gap between the appearance of reality to us and how reality actually is. So that's the gap I'm talking about, a gap between how we perceive reality and how reality actually is. We perceive reality as if there are just discrete, independent objects existing as they exist and doing what they do. A tree shedding its leaves, a car driving by, a president creating friends and enemies. But we do not perceive the incredibly complex sets of causal relations in which all of those things are embedded in to the degree that they are truly inseparable. So that is, if you examine, for example, a tree shedding its leaves, well, it's doing that because the earth has shifted on its axis. There's really no autumn without the earth shifting on its axis. If you think about a blue Honda Civic, that car depends on so many different factories all over the world in which all of its different parts are produced and assembled and put together. And that implies a whole political economy in which that car is completely enmeshed and embedded. And I'm going to leave the causation connected with Trump aside for obvious reasons. Um, I suppose what I'm really saying here is that we flirt with causation. We date with causation. We're kind of friends with causation. But we haven't really married it and had kids with it. We only go so far. We're not prepared to go all the way, which is to say we don't really see it all of the time whenever we look at, whenever we look at any particular thing. And I think there's a good reason for this, or maybe many reasons, but there's one very, very, very good reason. And this is that causation is actually rather nasty. It's unpleasant. It's really the thing which stops us doing whatever we really want to do. It's the thing which strongly shapes and determines us in all sorts of ways. So even the happiest and the wealthiest and the most powerful people are actually not usually that happy with their lot. Because even they are determined very strongly by causation. In some ways, even more strongly than ordinary people. So in other words, causation is deeply, deeply connected with constraint. The thing that properly stops us doing what we want, of moving where we wish, of being who we want to be, of driving whatever car we want to drive. And in this time of global pandemic, nothing could be more obvious. So it's like gravity to Isaac Newton's apple, an irrepressible and immutable law or constituent feature of reality which we are subject to. So even for great kings, causation is sovereign. It has dominion. And the king who does not respect this will quickly fall from power. So causation is really the rider and we are its horse. 
It's writing us. Sometimes we pretend otherwise. But, you know, in reality, we're the ones being written. And if we break a leg, we break a leg. C'est la vie. It's off to the glue factory. And I think we all kind of get this on whatever level. We all know we're being determined by causation. And that's in part why we drink on Friday nights and watch Netflix and do whatever else. We're always on the lookout for escapes from the sovereign hand of cause and effect. And that's why we don't go all the way with it. That's why we don't marry it and have kids with it. We don't want to. We want to escape from it. At least some of the time or probably most of the time. And the range of escapes are literally endless. Human imagination and desire is really brilliant at inventing ways to escape causation. But in the final analysis, almost all of them are fictions and almost all of them fail because causation always wins. It's the sovereign. It's what's riding us, not the other way around. Now, from here, from this kind of problematic, there are really two roads to go down. Uh, well, probably many, but let's reduce them to two. The first is a road of fatalism, and the second is a road of idealism. And both of them, I want to assert to you, are really dead ends. So I'm also going to be providing a third option. The road of fatalism is that which is prepared to look causation in the eye and say, you know what? Okay, you win. You are the sovereign. You run the show. You write the script. I'm just an actor saying my predestined lines. In other words, I fully accept being the horse and you being the rider. So it's this idea that actually we don't really have any agency in the unfolding of causes and effects. We're kind of fully determined by past causes to the degree that our only real choice is kind of giving up pretending that we have any choice. Which, you know, depending on, on the standpoint, can be kind of heroic and noble. And this kind of fatalistic reasoning finds its way into all sorts of different places. It's definitely there in a kind of hard biological determinism, which is whatever you're doing, whatever you're thinking is just your genetic impulse to reproduce or whatever else. It's there in more romantic and philosophical forms, including with a very big caveat, the tradition of Stoicism and Spinoza and many other great thinkers. The road of idealism has a kind of different intent. It's, you might say almost completely opposite. It looks at causation in the eye and says, excuse my language, it says, fuck you. I'm the boss. I'm sovereign. You follow my dictates. Because I am free, I will not be ruled by anything. So it's this notion that all of us have a great free will. And maybe if there's some theological juice dripping down on that, some capacity to create our own reality through sheer thinking alone. In other words, thinking which is free from being determined by cause and effect. Thinking which is somehow purer, more absolute, more innately creative. So here the horse is bucking the rider. 
and riding off into the sunset. It's kind of that American cowboy attitude, this kind of rugged individualism that refuses any form of constraint. And I think that, to be honest, a lot of us end up wavering back and forth between those two roads, sometimes even on the same day or even in the same hour. Sometimes we feel like we can conquer causation. And sometimes, no matter what we think, feel or do, it simply conquers us. So if you really think cleanly and clearly about this kind of problem, in the context of your own life, you'll probably see why my answer is what it is when there's a gun to my head asking me what is the most important thing. This is just so, so important to get right. And also, so, so hard. But also, if you do get it right, it's so incredibly profound and inspiring because it's really the key to reality. And because it's a key to reality, you can use this key to open the door to it. So this is my brave claim. I'm suggesting that there is indeed a possibility of mastering this immutable law of cause and effect. That there is something between these two roads which are ultimately dead ends. And I'm sorry to be the resident Buddhist, but there is a kind of middle way between fatalism or determinism and idealism or pure free will as a means of responding to the pressures of causation. And this really is the road of liberation, a way of freedom. It's not in any lofty or esoteric way, but in a very pragmatic, down-to-earth way. You know, a way where pumpkin seeds simply give rise to pumpkin fruits. That's kind of the approach here. Deal with reality as it comes to you and deal with it properly. That means deal with cause and effect. Don't fabricate some other version of reality which you then project or impose onto reality and therefore live ensnared by your own fabrications. So the essence of this approach is to really look causation in the eye and acknowledge its presence. Acknowledge its functioning and say, all right, let's work together. Let's dance together. I may be the horse, but maybe I can come to really know and respect the rider. And if I can do that, then maybe I can kind of become both at once. Because here's the thing, if everything in reality is governed by cause and effect, then everything is dynamic and intertwined. And that includes you. That means you too can become dynamic and intertwined. That's a way to become the rider, or to have the rider and the horse kind of disappear into one thing. So there's actually a trick to this dance which it really is quite Buddhistic. And I think it's a great contribution that the Buddhists have kind of made or given to humanity. And the trick is this, that once you look causation in the eye and realise its power to determine everything and then decide you can actually work with it or dance with it, you can begin to see that the reality of endless causes and effects is actually really malleable. It's kind of open. And it's far less determined than it might seem. In other words, there's room to move there. There's agency that you have to move there. 
which is to say that we always have options. But here's, this is really important. These options exist in direct relationship to the unfolding of causes and effects, not in spite of them. So it's not that second option where you're just denying the reality of cause and effect and kind of trying to overpower it with your thinking. No, they're emerging out of an attunement to it. And the more that you see this, the more you train yourself to understand this, the more options emerge and the more of your own agency begins to emerge. So an ethics, we could even call it a spirituality, really emerges precisely here. And it's one which I think we can kind of describe in terms of a movement in degrees from constraint towards freedom. And that's really what I'm going to deal with in the next few episodes, which is more the kind of the ethical part. So to finish here, I want to stay with the metaphysics just a touch longer so I can just explain this Buddhistic trick or Buddhistic contribution. If you already know your Buddhist philosophy, I'm sure there's a few of you out there that know it, it's simply that because everything is praticca samudpada, it is also necessarily shunya and anatta. And that really means because everything exists in dependence on causes and conditions, everything must also necessarily be empty and selfless. So I'm sure even those of you who don't really know much about Buddhist philosophy would have heard of this idea of emptiness or selflessness that the Buddhist famously propound a view in which there is no self and everything is empty. And just to explain this a little bit, and it's very simple and intuitive, but also in the same breath, you know, very profound and very transformative. And we don't need to move even one little hair's width away from everything we've been discussing about causation. All we need to do is consider the basic implication that the rock, or any object, the rock exists in an infinitely regressing chain of causation, cannot ever be, in any sense, a discrete, independent, or a central, solidly real rock. Such a thing can never be found. Such a thing has never existed, and it never will. And really, this much I've already said, in a different kind of way. So in other words, the emptiness of the rock is the lack of its own essence. It doesn't have an essence, and that is its emptiness. So whether we say the rock doesn't have an essence, or the rock is what it is in lieu of causes and conditions, or the rock is empty of self, these are all synonyms. These are all statements which more or less amount to the same claim, that there is no independent rock. There is only a dependent rock, a rock which is the effect of a prior cause and will be the cause of a whole bunch of future effects. So what we're doing away with here is any notion of independence and replacing that with a notion of interdependence. And that interdependence very strongly implies causation, this, this infinitely regressing chain of causation. And here's the thing, though, there's something about the way that our minds work and the way that our perception works and the way that our senses work, which tend to combine and assume or impute 
that there are in fact independently existing rocks and pumpkins and Donald Trumps and Honda Civics. So we're right back to where I was before, where I was talking about this fundamental gap between the way reality appears to us and the way reality actually is. This is the nature of that gap. Taking reality to be, or perceiving reality to be, composed of independently existing, discrete or essential things, when in actuality they are dependently relating things in complex chains of causation. So the possibility of freedom is kind of entirely resting on closing that gap, of diminishing it or eradicating it. And in this sense, constraint is kind of akin to a stasis, being stuck. Seeing the world or objects of the world as fixed and essential, when in reality it's very fluid and dynamic. And really, it's, seen, it's about seeing that everything has causation underpinning it. So the very subtle, elusive, abstract, strange notion of emptiness is really just this. It's actually not very lofty or esoteric. It's much more simple and easy and pragmatic. If you don't forget causation, you will not forget reality. And if you learn to respect and maybe even dance with causation, you will automatically learn to dance with reality. Now this probably begs a big question for a lot of you. And especially for those who've kind of looked a little bit into Buddhism. And the question might be this. If that is so simple, then why is it so hard? That is, why do the Buddhist yogis go off into caves for 20 years to try and cross that abyss? Well, this is something I'm going to go into more deeply in the following episodes. But to give it to you in a nutshell now, the reason it's so hard to cross that gap is because somehow or other we need to cross the gap between theory and reality. All of this is just theory. Right? They're wor it's words. You're listening, I'm speaking, and we're referring to a whole bunch of cognitions and theories about reality. Now, I think it's very true that the content of theory, of these kinds of words, can push our minds and our perceptions and our interpretations and our experiences and even our sensory impressions much, much closer towards reality as it is. So words can take you to the doorstep. And they maybe even can be the key to opening that door. But they can never, ever, ever show you what's on the other side of that door, which is nothing more or less than your apprehension of reality as it is. Words cannot do that. Theory cannot do that. But words and theory, philosophy, science, whatever else, it can take you to the door. And really what I'm saying in this episode is the door is causation. If you know this and you examine it clearly, you're stepping into the possibility then of that true apprehension. So that's a nutshell. Uh, I hope it's a bit confusing because it should be. You know, these are very profound matters. 
uh, and a paragraph or two is not really going to crack it open. But next episode, I will attempt to dispel some of this confusion. So that's probably enough for today. Uh, again, I apologize for the very long delay, uh, but thank you very much for listening. Please contact me if you want any clarification or if perhaps you want to criticize anything uh, in the episode. And please stay tuned for more high-quality content at aratehouse.com.au.